What is philosophy? Anybody who was here that first week remind us what philosophy is? Anybody? Yes? Love of wisdom? Yes. So, so, so etymologically, that's right. Uh, the word philosophy, uh, philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia, meaning uh, love of wisdom. And so um, ideally, right, uh, the practice of philosophy is a kind of uh, living out of that uh, love of wisdom. Any other thoughts about what philosophy is or is not? What do philosophers do? How do they love wisdom? Study it? Yeah, so the, stu- yeah, the study of wisdom, hard, hard thinking about things. What kinds of... Yes? Qu- quest- uh, sorry, say it again. Question truths, yes, so question uh, truth claims, right? Ask questions, that's right. So we talked about a big part of philosophy is asking sort of big fundamental questions. Um, what else? Yes. yes. How to fit a, a, a view into a paradigm of thinking. So it's kind of, uh, we, we use the word, uh, the big fancy word, I think, the first week, systematization, right? We talked about how philosophy involves a kind of systematizing of your beliefs, right? Putting them into a system, seeing how your beliefs fit together uh, with one another um, in, a, in a sort of coherent, hopefully coherent uh, system, right? If it's incoherent, we want to know that too, and we want to fix that. Um, good, good, yeah, so... We've got here just a uh, kind of quick sum-up phrase of what is philosophy. It is the loving pursuit of wisdom through careful reasoning and logical argumentation, right? I mean, this is some of this we can do on our own, right? We can just sit and reason carefully about things. Um, uh, But also, it's really helpful to have people to talk to, right? Because they can give us ideas that maybe we haven't considered. They can suggest arguments that we haven't considered. And we sort of bounce ideas back and forth um, in a process that that, that the ancients called dialectic. Um, And so, uh, we both engage in logical argumentation and uh, careful reasoning in in the pursuit of truth. At least that's what philosophy is in its ideal form. All right, Lindsay, you want to talk them through this one? So, um... Can you all hear me? Okay. It's a little um, quiet, so yeah. So there are three sub-disciplines of philosophy. Um, does anyone remember what they are? So in other words, philosophy can be... Uh, yes, okay. Great, ethics. Ethics is one of them? Good. So what, what are ethics? Yeah, the study of right and wrong, the study of morality. Excellent. Um, what's another one? Oh, if I'll jump in there for a second. The big questions that we've talked about in this class, one of the big questions that we talked about, in fact, last Sunday, had to do with ethics. And anybody remember what we talked about last week? Happiness, yes. Whoever said that, very good. Yeah, we talked about happiness last week. We talked about the idea of happiness and the good life. What is happiness, right? Um, what is this thing that so many of us think is sort of the aim of life uh, that we're trying to accomplish? Well, that fits squarely in um, ethics, uh, especially as the ancients uh, conceived of it. Um, ethics is all about trying to figure out what the good life is and how we can, how we can live it. Anybody else? Another sub-discipline of philosophy? Epistemology. Yes. It's awesome you can pronounce that. That's impressive. <laughs> so epistemology, simply, does anybody know what it, what it means? Anybody Yeah, the study of knowledge, exactly. What is true and how do we know that? that it's true. 
Excellent. What about the third subdiscipline that we discussed? Just briefly. We haven't talked as much about this third area yeah. of philosophy. Metaphysics. Yes. Metaphysics. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yes, very good. So where epistemology is the study of knowledge, metaphysics is the study of what really is, right? It's a study of reality. It's a study of what exists, right? Um, uh, we're going to say a little bit about met metaphysics today, thinking about the nature of the human person uh, just a little bit, um, and, and some of the ancient philosophies that uh, the Apostle Paul engaged with and how they might have differed uh, with the, the Christian view of the human person. Um, but that's metaphysics. And, so, and, and those of you who uh, have been coming to the course, we, we've, we've talked quite a bit about epistemology. In fact, we spent two whole weeks talking about um, epistemology of um, religion and morality. So we talked about whether things can be known, whether truths of morality can be known, things like murder is wrong or um, things like you shouldn't steal, right? Whether that can be known um, and, and also whether religious truths can be known. God exists, for example, right? And there is a popular uh, view, I, I called it epistemic scientism, um, I, I made that up a little bit, uh, the idea that um, the idea that the only things that can be known are those that are scientifically provable, right? The, the, that, that's the only stuff we can know, is what we can sort of go test in a lab or do some survey to find out or go look around at the world somehow and, and figure out whether it's true or not. Um, uh, there are some people who think those are the only things that, you know, th that's the only area in which we can have knowledge. And so morality's out and religion's out. Those are just, well, you can believe in those areas, but you can't really know. Um, and we talked about... Uh, does anybody remember one of, one of the ways that we can show that that's actually not a good way to think about knowledge, that that's not a good test for knowledge, scientific provability? Anybody remember one of the arguments we used against that? It, because if it's true, yeah, so that's close. Because if it's true, it's not true, so she said. So it's got a kind of self-defeating character to it. As it turns out, um, it, it's, it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's um, in the case of uh, the claim about knowledge, if it's true that the only things that we can know are those that are scientifically provable, then guess what? Can we know that? That the only things that we can know are scientifically provable? Can we know that claim to be true? We can't, because it's not scientifically provable, right? So we can believe it, but we can't know it's true, right? So it ends up sort of getting thrown out. That, that very claim itself ends up getting thrown out just along with uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that I think we really do, um, other stuff that we really do know, like truths about morality, truths about religion. So it's got a self-defeating character to it, this claim that the only things that you can know are scientifically provable. Okay, good. So we got all three of the uh, major subdisciplines of philosophy, ethics, epistemology, and metaphysics, and we've talked a little bit about each one uh, in this course. Those are big words, and now you know something about what they mean and why they matter, right? Because there are important questions that are, um, that, uh, that, that people take answers for granted to uh, on each of these issues today, and we need to be prepared to be able to discuss those with them. We also talked the first week about how philosophy can be dangerous for Christians. Does anybody remember what we said about why philosophy can be dangerous for Christians? Nobody? I know this was like a month ago. That's why we're doing this. It's okay. Yes? Yes. 
Yeah, very good. Yeah, philosophy can lead to a kind of arrogance, a kind of intellectual pridefulness, right? Um, you can get really good at arguing for your view in a way that seems convincing uh, to people and maybe even to yourself and um, end up thinking that you're a whole lot smarter than other people, right? Because you know big words like ethics and epistemology and metaphysics, right? Um, and that can lead to a kind of arrogance, a kind of, uh, like I said, intellectual pridefulness. That's, that's true. So it can lead to intellectual vice, actually, right? Viciousness. Why else? You said something else that was, I think, important. You said um, philosophy can convince us that it's the only way to know something. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, sort of on that point, I think um, philosophy can encourage us to think that if there's some accepted view, there's some accepted view among the philosophical world out there, right? That somehow you're, you're irrational or you're doing something wrong if you don't agree with it, right? That if you're going to be a rational person, you've got to agree with whatever the accepted orthodoxy of the philosophical field is. Now, there's not a whole lot of orthodoxy within uh, philosophy. Uh, philosophers disagree about most subjects, um, and they sometimes do so um, rather uh, vociferously, right? Uh, but um, but there is some agreement, at least at the, at the, you know, among the academy, right? There, there are some views, we've talked about a couple of them, that at least for certain periods of time enjoy a lot of popularity. Um, and they're sort of the orthodoxy of the day. And um, it, it's very uh, easy to get convinced that somehow if you don't believe that orthodoxy um, of the academic uh, philosophy world, that, you, that you're, you're not a smart person, you're not a good philosopher, you're not a good thinker. Um, and oftentimes that orthodoxy is actually antithetical to Christian belief, right? It's actually antithetical to, to the Christian worldview, and so Christians shouldn't believe it. Um, and they're doing nothing wrong in not believing it. They're not doing anything intellectually um, uh, uh, bad by not believing it, and yet uh, that, that is something that can be communicated by the field. Yeah, Lowell, I saw, I saw a hand... Yeah, so a lot, yeah, that's right. So a lot of what you get from philosophy is, is um, contrary to a Christian worldview, and so we need to be careful and we need to not just accept it because, well, a whole bunch of smart philosophers think it's true or something. Yeah. Good. But how can philosophy be beneficial? Should we just throw it out? Stop doing philosophy altogether? helps you to know why you believe what you believe. Yeah, it helps you understand the reasons for your belief, or maybe we might even talk about the justification for your belief, or why your belief is rational, or, yeah, so good. Yeah, philosophy can help you do that, and that's really valuable. Right? Yes? Effective tool for, for proving things? Yeah, for proving what's true. Right? For actually getting to the truth, for arguing to the truth and figuring out what the truth is. Um, yeah, and, and we should want that, right? I mean, if Christianity really is true, and if philosophy is a way to discover the truth or to communicate the truth or to argue and try to arrive at the truth, then there's, there should be nothing at least inherently uh, uh, antithetical between philosophy and Christianity. And philosophy might even help. In fact, um, 
for a long time in the medieval uh, period, philosophy was considered the handmaiden of theology. Uh, it was considered the, the discipline above all other disciplines that sort of stood right underneath theology and helped to prop up theology and make sense of theology. Um, and so, yeah, philosophy can definitely enhance our understanding of the Christian worldview and our ability to articulate it uh, in a way that's, that's convincing. Yeah. That's right. So it helps us to go deeper, not just taking for granted something as true because some preacher said it, but actually um, understanding why it's true, understanding it more deeply. Um, and, and yeah, it helps us do all of those things. Yeah. Good. Good. So philosophy is valuable. It can be valuable, and yet it's dangerous, and so we have to be careful with it, right? In fact, you know, this is true of most things that are valuable. You know, the more value they have, the more danger they can also have. Um, and so we need to be careful. We need to use it well. And, uh, and hopefully... Uh, throughout the, uh, uh, um, this series, you have been introduced to some ways of doing Christian philosophy well, some ways of approaching um, biblical texts with a kind of reverence for Scripture, while at the same time a kind of questioning mind and uh, an, an investigation um, where we want to actually discover the truth. Anything, Lindsay, before I move on? Um, I think... One thing I'd like to add is one thing that Pastor Glenn does a really nice job of is that he actually will integrate philosophical theories and philosophical ideas into his um, homily, into the sermon. And so you'll notice that sometimes he'll refer to a philosopher. Um, I, I think he's referred to Immanuel Kant. Um, he's referred to Hume. Aquinas, Hume. Locke. Uh, Locke, a lot of different philosophers throughout throughout um, his sermons, and I think it's kind of cool for us to be able to say, you know what, he understands that philosophy is important to understanding the context of not only the scriptures, but also the context of current thought and what people have been thinking throughout history about the big questions, about questions like, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to live a good life? Um, who am I, right? What is my identity? What is truth? Those sorts of things. So in a way, Glenn kind of exemplifies what we're talking about um, in this series. Yeah, good. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. So the question is, um, in the Middle Ages, there was this view that philosophy was um, a, a support for the church and a support for theology, and that it was, um, as I said, the handmaiden of theology, right, there to serve theology and uh, to, to help theologians do, do their work better. Um, and the question is, is it still that way today? Um, I, I, I think, unfortunately not, um, in, in many parts of the Christian church around the world today, philosophy has lost its place of influence. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that, uh, a couple of big reasons. Um, one, one is the sort of the, the, the co-opting of philosophy by secular uh, thinkers, um, by non-Christian thinkers who have, um, I mean, I mean t today, for example, in, in, in uh, North America and in Europe, um, the, the field of philosophy, the academic field of philosophy is predominantly atheistic. Um, 
I don't, I don't know how much we can trust these sort of self-report surveys, but according to at least some surveys that I've seen, the numbers are in the range of 70 to 80% of practicing professional philosophers are not theists. Um, that's not to say they're not Christians. They're not theists at all, right? Um, and so uh, then among that group of theistic philosophers, um, you're going to have a wide range of religious perspectives represented. And so there's just a sense in which, as an academic field, there's been a kind of move away from um, the Christian worldview. Uh, and, I, and I think that's true. That's true of the university in general, right? Um, the, the universities... Uh, uh, Around the 18th, 19th century, um, uh, universities in the West started to um, become more and more secularized. So that universities that were begun as Bible colleges, like even Harvard University was begun as a, as a, as a training school for, for pastors, um, began to think that if you were going to be an intellectually respectable person, you couldn't keep believing in this Christianity nonsense, right? You couldn't keep believing in things like miracles and the resurrection of the dead and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, right? That if, if you believed in those things, there was something sort of unscientific about you. Um, and we talked um, a couple of weeks ago about uh, this view called logical positivism that was very popular um, around the turn of the 20th century um, and for the first half of the 20th century uh, that really sort of ruled the day. And it was, it was kind of like this idea that only those things which can be scientifically proven um, can, be, can be known or are true. Um, and that's... Uh, uh, so, so the adoption of views like that, I think, encouraged a lot of people to a lot of Christians to get out of the academy. Then what you saw happen is right around that same time, in the early 1900s, you saw a whole bunch of these little Bible colleges pop up all over the country. Right? So you've got Biola University, and you've got uh, Denver Seminary, and you've got Wheaton College, and you've got a whole lot of these little Christian schools that they said, look, we want to be academics, and we want to study, but, and we want to train people for ministry, but we can no longer do that in the traditional university setting. And so we've got to create these other um, Bible schools right, as an alternative to the major academic centers of the country. Well, one of the bad consequences of this, right? Um, uh, maybe, maybe that was a good move. You know, it's, 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 hard, to, it's hard to know. I, I mean, some of these schools have turned out to be really great universities now, right, that rival our best, uh, 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 most highly thought of universities in this country um, in terms of the quality of education that they provide. Um, but one of the things that it meant was now there's an even further move away, you know, Christians, <laughs> Uh, uh, have moved away further from these academic centers that really are the, the sort of um, where, where we look to for our academic experts, right? We think this is where the academic elite is and, um, and fewer and fewer Christians populate those uh, universities. Uh, I think we're seeing a turn in that though, especially in philosophy um, uh, due to some very courageous and um, uh, a, a very... Um, word I'm looking for, um, influential Christian scholars uh, in, the, in the late part of the 20th century in the field of philosophy, um, we're seeing a return of Christians to this discipline, and it's starting to regain its place. But it's this, what we're doing here, a little Sunday school class on philosophy and Christian thought, very rare, right? I mean, how many churches are you going to go to where you're going to find 
this many people sitting in a room for a Sunday school class that has anything to do with philosophy. It's pretty rare. And, uh, and I think we want to be part of a little bit of a revival <laughs> in that sense, reviving the life of philosophy within the context of, of the Christian church. I saw a hand go up. Yeah. Uh, how is it impacting how philosophy is being taught at the Air Force Academy? Um, that's a good question. Um, so, I think as with any... Um, as with any non-religiously, you know, based institution, um, philosophy is going to be taught in a way um, that doesn't presuppose any religious uh, tradition, right? Um, but I do think there's an awful lot of um, academic freedom at a place like the Air Force Academy. Um, I would actually say there's, I, in my experience, I've experienced more academic freedom um, in terms of my ability to um, do philosophy as a Christian in my own writing, right, and in my own, you know, comp- presenting at conferences and publications. Um, I've experienced more freedom to do that kind of thing and be encouraged in that kind of work um, at the Air Force Academy than I think I would even at a lot of other um, major uh, secular institutions. Um, there are some secular institutions where being a Christian in the philosophy department um, is... Is, is not always uh, a good way to get ahead, <laughs> um, especially if, if you're outspoken in your views or you're writing on topics that are really only of interest to Christians or you're writing on them from a distinctively Christian angle um, that is, uh, that's not uh, looked highly upon in some, in some places. Um, but, I'm, but I'm glad that that's not the case at the Air Force Academy. I do think there's a lot of uh, opportunity for religious freedom there, so long as I'm not trying to use my position as a government employee, as an employee of the Air Force Academy, to try and promote Christianity in a way that would be um, inappropriate? Yeah, good question. I, just one thing I wanted to note is that, you know, going off of the points that Adam just spoke about, I think it underlines the fact that as Christians, it's crucial that we are articulate and conversant in philosophy because we are a minority because in a sense many Christians have said you know what that's just something I'm not going to deal with you know that's other people it's secular it's bad well guess what that's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. there's a lot of actually positive things that philosophy can bring to us but there's a lot of positive things we can bring to philosophy and so I think that this is it's so encouraging to see all of you in this room because that means you care you're you're taking your time on a Sunday morning um to 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 come here, and I, I think that that speaks really well of our congregation here, and um, just your personal commitment to be conversant in these topics. Yeah, good. Good. On, on that note, um, what we had planned for today, I know this was kind of a, a little bit of a long review session, but that's, that's what we planned. We wanted that. We wanted to have some time to sort of um, wrap up uh, today, and so we We didn't plan a whole lot of new material, but what we did um, want to do today is to look at a kind of case study of engagement with philosophy um, as Christians, and uh, we're going to use Paul uh, as our example. So Paul, in a um, somewhat famous passage uh, from Acts, Acts 17, um, he took some time to speak and to try and reason with and to argue with 
um, some philosophers who were representing some of the major schools of thought of the day um, at, uh, the, at a place called the Areopagus. Um, that actually, Areopagus comes from two Greek words, um, Arios and Pagos, and uh, it means Ares is hill. Um, Ares is the, is the name of the Greek god of war, and Mars is the, is the Roman equivalent god. Uh, I have to thank my son Luke for helping me know that. Uh, he, he's, he's studying Greek mythology right now, so I had, I had to ask him last night. I said, wait, so which one was the Greek god and which one was the Roman uh, version? And so Mars is, uh, is, is the Roman name of the Greek god Ares, and so this place uh, is often referred to as Mars Hill. The Areopagus is often referred to as Mars Hill, and this was a place that was used um, uh, in, in Athens, as a kind of uh, a, a place where they would conduct trials, where they would conduct sort of criminal um, court cases. They would pronounce judgments, and um, many of the thinkers of the day would, uh, would congregate there and talk to each other about the latest ideas of the day. Um, and so uh, Paul gets an opportunity to interact with them, and I think we can learn a lot from the way that Paul interacts with uh, the philosophers of his day about how we might interact with the philosophers and the philosophies of our day. So uh, Lindsay's going to read this passage for us, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll open it up and, and, and see what we can learn from it. So I encourage you to follow along if possible. Um, we're in Acts 17, starting out with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you. So think about this passage. Dwell on it for just a minute. and Think about what we can learn from Paul's interaction with the philosophers of his day about how we might interact with uh, philosophy in our own day. Um, as you're thinking about that, though, I want to just walk you through a little bit of background because two important schools of thought are mentioned in this passage, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Says. So I thought it would be important um, that we get a little bit of background on who, who were these folks and what did they believe. So Lindsay, you want to um, just talk through a little bit about what Stoicism is about? Sure. We mentioned this last week, but um, we'll, we'll say a little bit more today. So Stoicism and Epicureanism both fall into the category of Hellenistic philosophy. And for Stoicism in particular, the Stoics believed that any sort of emotion, um, whether sort of good or bad, was in essence sort of an immoral action. Um, They thought that emotions were false judgments about the world and about events. And so they recommended, their their philosophy recommended that you kind of flatline, that you should have this sort of... uh, um, you shouldn't really experience highs or lows, but your emotions should be congruent with the reality of things. That fate is in control. There's nothing really you can do about your circumstances. Um, if, for example, the Stoics said, uh, a famous one um, said, Epictetus, he said, if you lose your wife and she's, she's dead by the time you get home, you should just realize that she was going to die anyways and she's just like a jug. You know, they, they got broken and, and fell over and it's just, it is what it is sort of thing. And so the Stoics believed that th- there was sort of this fate, this active power that, you know, was in control, but there was no personality to this active power and you really needed to just um, sort of push your emotions aside and just accept things as they are. They were also materialists, like the Epicureans, so they believed that everything that was real was made out of material. There was nothing immaterial to the world. So that influenced their entire worldview and how they saw. In, in essence, this is what metaphysics is. This is an example of what their worldview was. Yeah, so they thought a kind of God exists, but it was a God that was sort of made up of physical... Um, uh, uh, um, Uh, heat or air sort of moving in the world and making things happen uh, in the physical world and that uh, the best thing that you could do is figure out um, that you're really not in control of all that much in your life and learn how to cope with it appropriately by just sort of not holding on to this life very tightly, right? And And you can see the sort of if you don't have a picture of a personal God who cares about you and loves you, right, you can see how this might seem like a good piece of wisdom, right? That, well, look, there's just not that much you can do about your circumstances, about your life. People go through bad stuff, right? Accidents happen. People get cancer, right? It, life is hard. And the sooner that you sort of figure that out and stop getting on these emotional highs and lows, right, and things are going great, you feel so good, and and then when things go bad, you feel so badly, right? And the sooner that you can figure all this out and just sort of become tranquil, right? At peace, right? Their word for it was apatheia, right? We think of apathy as a bad thing. They thought of apatheia, it mean actually without emotion, without passion, apatheia, 
right, without passion. They thought this, this was the goal, right? This was happiness. If you could just learn to sort of keep calm and carry on, right? That's the, that's the idea, right? That's the Stoic philosophy, right? Um, and so that is, uh, that's, that's one of the views that was mentioned. And then the other one is uh, Epicureanism. Now, Epicureans, um, they had an even uh, a stronger sort of materialistic view where they thought everything that existed in the world was made up of basic sort of small, imperceptible, immaterial bits, atoms. <laughs> um, they thought everything was made up of atoms, even the soul. Even the soul was made up of physical stuff. So when you felt emotions, when you were having thoughts, it was all just sort of this immaterial little bits of stuff moving around in you. Um, and so they thought the, the real problem with people, here's the real problem. The real problem is not that they have these emotional highs and lows. The real problem is a particular set of emotions, namely fear and anxiety. They thought the real problem with people is they're afraid of death. And all these religious folks who keep coming around telling people, well, you ought to be afraid of what's going to happen when you die, and you ought to think about what's going to happen in the afterlife, they thought these are, these are the, the problem, right? This is the problem with people. They've got these views of the afterlife. They think that the gods care about how we live and that something's going to happen to us when we die. And they just need, you just need to get over that because, look, your soul is just made up of this physical stuff. And so when your body dies, your soul dies. There's no afterlife. And so you just need to pursue pleasure, try to avoid pain, recognize that the pains in this life really aren't as bad as you think they are because they're pretty short-lived, the ones that are bad, really extreme, right? And the ones that aren't so extreme, well, um, they might last a while, but at least they don't hurt that bad. And so you just try to do the best you can and enjoy life as much as you can and realize that you don't need to worry at all about what's going to happen after you die because guess what? When you die, you can't feel pain anymore. So that's it. It's over, right? That's all you get. So that's the Epicurean uh, philosophy. And these are the folks that Paul was speaking to. So what, in light of that, do you think we can learn from Paul's interaction with these philosophers? Well, how did he interact with them? What, and, and what lessons maybe should we take away from how he interacts with these philosophers? Yes. He spoke their language. Yeah. Which required that he understood their language, right? You can't speak their language unless you understand what they believe and why they believe it, right? And he was even able to quote poets that they would have recognized, right? He met them where they were, yeah. That's a wonderful point. So he wasn't, he didn't start off swinging. He didn't start off saying, okay, I'm going to show you how you're wrong. They asked him first. They, they initiated the conversation and said, hey, I'd, we'd like to know a little bit more about what you believe. And then he goes on to, to speak about it. Yeah, on, on that point, um, there's a passage in, in, in uh, 1 Peter, in the epistle of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, where he says, be ready in season and out of season uh, to give a reason to those who ask you for a, uh, I'm sorry, to give an answer to those who ask you for a reason for the hope that you have, right? And I think this is often used by people who promote Christian apologetics, right? They say, oh, have reasons ready. Um, be ready to give arguments 
uh, to people who want to know why they should believe in Christianity, and I think there's some truth to that, right? We should be ready to be able to explain to people why we believe what we believe. But the important assumption that's made in that passage that people often miss is that they're supposed to ask you for the reason for the hope that you have, right? You're supposed to look different than the world. That's why the conversation gets started in the first place. You're not just supposed to go around and throw your apologetic arguments at everybody, right? You're supposed to show them a different kind of life, a kind of life that they think looks attractive. Whoa, you have hope? You're you're not grieving when people die the way that other people grieve. Why not? What's going on? What is this stuff about the resurrection? I don't really understand, but I'd kind of like to have it. Can you tell me why? You believe what you believe, right? That's what's supposed to get the conversation started, and that's what uh, gets the conversation started with Paul here. Yeah, good. Sorry, Travis? Right. Uh, so I'll go plumber's point. I think uh, one of the things that really kind of led to the strength of the argument is that he didn't obviously attack them. It was more of a constructing what they were. So they had to alter some place. They were worshiping something, but weren't entirely sure what that was. And so he utilized that kind of foundation upon that to where there really was kind of So, yeah, you're saying that they both were seeking God. So he, he built upon the foundation of commonality before he went to describe the differences or the variance with what they believed. Um, and he, he even pointed out specifically, he said, you know, I see here you have all these idols, you're seeking God. And there's even an idol that says that this is, the inscription is, to an unknown God. So what, you know, let me tell you about this unknown God, the person you've been seeking and, and kind of like fleshing out what that might mean. Now, is it possible that, that they didn't know who they were seeking, but he's trying to give them that um, perspective? Some of them didn't accept it. Some of them did. But still, he's giving them, them an opportunity to know, hey, this is where we are similar. And then here's where we, we are different. Yeah, interesting contrast here between the way Paul approaches these philosophers in Athens and the way that John the Baptist approached the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, right? You snakes, you brood of vipers, right? They, they, John approached them differently because they should have known better, right? They should have known better, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. They should have known the Messiah when he came. They were the ones who had been called out of the world to love and serve Yahweh, right? the God of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, right? They were the called out ones. These philosophers, Paul approaches them with a different kind of an attitude than that. He says, look, you, I see that you're very religious. You're trying, and I want to give you some credit for that. <laughs> but now let me point you in the right direction. Let me point you toward the truth, right? Because right now you're sort of blind, right? You don't, you're not seeing the truth, but you're maybe trying to get there. You're trying to... Grope the truth, right? But you can't quite get it. Yeah. What's changed? I'm not sure my question, but back then we had all these gods, these idols mm-hmm. back then, and they were the intellectual elite. And then today, where we have more atheism than intellectual circles. How's a similar opportunity in Okay, so I think the question is. Um, we live, maybe today, the intellectual elite is far less religious, right? It's not like people are worshiping idols quite like they were in, um, in this, this ancient Greek setting. And so um, while these philosophers uh, uh, weren't Christians, they, were, they at least had some religiousness to their, uh, uh, to their non-Christianity, right? To their secularism. And, um, and today that doesn't seem to be the case of 
the non-Christian sort of philosophical elite? Um, that's a good question. I, I think... Um, Adam, I was going to say something to you. Yeah, this. go ahead. Um, I think that there actually is a certain sort of fervency with secularism um, that actually might parallel to, to you know, what you're talking about with the, you know, the, the people of Athens, the Stoics, the Epicureans. So I think the fervency might be there. Um, and I wonder if there are idols, um, but maybe they don't, they're, they're not named in the same way. So maybe the idols of secularism could be things like... Um, I mean, just of our society, things like power and, and money and, you know, economic prosperity. And the, the thing about an idol is, and what's so insidious about idol worship, is that you're worshiping something that you created, right? Which means what you're really doing is worshiping yourself, right? That's why idolatry is so bad. Because what you're doing when you engage in idolatry is you're worshiping a, a creation of your own making. You've made the thing. It didn't make you. And you know that, even if you're pretending that it's got this personality and it's got this divine life, you know that you are controlling it. You are in control. And we live in a culture where we very much are all about self-worship. <laughs> we live in a culture where we are all about constructing our lives in a way that we think we can make ourselves safe with our 401ks, with our gated communities with our airbags on all sides of our car, right? We want to design a world in which we are safe, where we have money, where we can take care of any needs that we have, and we need no God other than ourselves. And so there is very much a kind of secular idolatry going on in our culture today. At the same time, I think there is another parallel with this Paul passage today in that we also live in a culture that recognizes certain moral and religious truths. They really do. There is more religiosity, I think, out there than people realize. There's also more sort of moralism out there than people realize, right? We talked about what are one of the reasons why so many people are inclined toward a kind of moral relativism that says all moral truth is relative to cultures? Because they want people to be kind to each other. They think this is going to make people more tolerant, and that's a good thing. It's going to make them more respectful of people who come from other cultures and backgrounds and not quite so prideful to think that, oh, I've got it all figured out because, you know, I'm an American, right? And that would be a good thing to instill a little bit of humility and kindness and respectfulness in people. It really would. And so people who hold that view, it's a false view. Moral relativism is not true. But the motivation for it, there's something good about that, right? It's like worshiping the, the unknown God, right? It's like setting up the altar to the unknown God. It's saying, look, we can see that there's something true out there that we're trying to grasp at and we just don't quite get it. And so, you know, somebody comes along and turns us into moral relativists. Well, that's bad. But the motivation, there's something right about that. You, you're trying to be loving. And in that way, you're reflecting God's image in you, right? You really are an image bearer of God. And you're reflecting that image in wanting people to be more loving and respectful of each other. Now let's try to put that together in a worldview that makes sense of it, right? A worldview that says, yeah, there really are some moral truths. There's ways to treat people that are good and there's ways to treat people that are bad. And so this is a kind of, a kind of approach that, that, that mirrors Paul's, right? That sort of parallels Paul's approach to say, hey, you, 
you're on to something, but now let me tell you where it goes. It doesn't go where you think it goes. It doesn't go to all this idol worship. It doesn't go to moral relativism. It goes in this other direction that actually points in the direction of Christianity and the truth of the Christian worldview. So I saw a hand in the back a while back, yeah. Good, yeah, Paul was actually out meeting people where they were in the marketplace, talking to them, not waiting for somebody to come to him, but he was out engaging with culture, yeah. Okay, yeah, so the suggestion was um, uh, there's some archaeological discoveries that have suggested that this, this place, the Areopagus, was a kind of almost like a university community, right? It was a community of scholars who engaged each other on ideas. And as you read the passage, um, it actually says they brought Paul to the Areopagus, right? It's like they invited him in and said, you come speak to us and talk to us about these ideas because we haven't heard this before. And we like new ideas. We'd like to find out what this is all about. Um, And so they invited him in to this sort of cultural center, this academic cultural center. Um, And so get back to that little bit of, you know, academic history that um, I, I bored you with earlier, right? Maybe there is some reason to think that Christians do need to be moving back into the academic centers of our own day um, and not just isolating themselves. Not that there's anything wrong with Bible colleges. I went to one of them, and I'm glad I did. It was a great experience, and I got a great education at uh, Biola University as an undergraduate. Um, but there's something to be said for re-entering those academic centers that really are um, where the academic elites of our day uh, work as Christians and sort of um, uh, re-engaging Christianity in that academic conversation um, in all disciplines, not just in philosophy, but in all, in all of the academic disciplines. Yeah.
Good, good. I'm not going to repeat that nearly as well as he said it. I'm going to try to repeat just a bit of it, mostly for the sake of the recording. Uh, but the idea is that Paul's not afraid to engage with the ideas of his day. He, he thought his God is greater, his, his worldview is true, and he was not afraid to know and understand and engage with the popular worldviews of the day um, and engage them on their level rather than just sort of isolating himself or removing himself from that, uh, from that conversation. Okay, good. We have... I think we've said all of this. Um, Paul reasoned with the people of Athens. He was familiar with the writings and ideas of the Athenian philosophers and poets. He looked for the truth behind the Athenians' beliefs and practices rather than just writing them off as unchristian. This is the one thing that we haven't yet mentioned is that some people see the truth as foolishness. Paul's worldview is true. He was preaching the truth. And some of them still mocked him for it. He was sneered at by these intellectual elites who thought the body dies and the soul dies and there is no resurrection, there is no afterlife. Oh, you silly religious person, still thinking that there's some God that's immaterial. You're so unscientific, Paul. You're so foolish to believe in this resurrection of the body, that there's an afterlife. Oh, you're just one of those silly religious people who keeps making people fear death and be anxious about death, right? And that's the real problem in the world. The problem isn't sin. The problem is everybody's worried about death and everybody's worried about what's going to happen to him after death. This is the Epicurean philosophy. And so they laughed at him. And frankly, we should expect that. <laughs> right? Not everybody's going to respond to the truth and go, oh, you're so wise. That is, oh, that, of course that's so true. No, lots of people are going to hear the truth and going to reject it. Maybe even laugh at the person who's presenting the truth. All right? If it can happen to the Apostle Paul, it can happen to you and I. <laughs> After all, it happened to Jesus too, didn't it? <laughs> the Son of God came down to live among us, to tell us what God is like and what he wants from us and how he wants to be in relationship with us. And he even died Though he was innocent, he died a sinner's death on a cross so that we might be saved. And he got mocked and laughed at and beaten. It happened to Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised if it happens to us. No amount of learning, no amount of education, no amount of propping yourself up on the shoulders of other intellectual giants is going to get you to be accepted by the world. At the end of the day, the gospel is offensive. But we don't need to add to that offense by the way we present it. We have just a few minutes left. Um, I'll put uh, our contact information up here. There's an email address for, for Lindsay and I. Um, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear follow-up about the course. We'd love to hear if you want suggestions for further study. Um, we'd love to hear anything that you might want to share um, and, and to be in conversation with you all um, uh, or anybody who didn't come to the course if they'd like to just talk to us about the course. Uh, one of the things I do want to make available to you is I want to make these slides available to you that I've been using. I told you early on that I'm, you know, I didn't want you to try and write everything down. Um, uh, so... so um, by all means, email me if you want these uh, slides. I'll put them in a PDF and, and send those out to anybody who, who'd like to have access to those.
wanted to make a few um, brief suggestions for further study on some of the topics that we've covered. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's a few books and a couple of other things that I'll mention. Um, one is the book by J.P. Moreland, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul is a really nice, oh, thanks, yeah, a really nice introduction to um, the relationship between philosophy and Christian thought and Christian thinking. Um, uh, fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It by Oz Guinness. Uh, is a great, uh, great little book. Um, if you haven't read Oz Guinness, is a great author. He's really fun to read and uh, very insightful. Um, this is related to this question that we received earlier about, you know, does philosophy have any kind of a role in the church, and if so, why? If so, why? If not, why not? Um, he canvasses a lot of sort of cultural and social and academic issues that led to the sort of move away from the academic life um, by a lot of evangelicals. Um, down here, this book is called Knowing Christ Today, Why We Can Trust Spiritual Knowledge by Dallas Willard. If you've never read Dallas Willard, um, really um, just amazingly insightful author, a philosopher, taught for many, many years at the University of Southern California um, as a philosophy professor, but wrote some great, great works on um, spiritual formation, on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, one of his most famous is called The Divine Conspiracy. Um, he passed away just a couple of years ago, and he was... Um, before he passed away, he published this book called Knowing Christ Today, and it's all about uh, the idea that we looked at in weeks two and three on can we know things about morality, can we know things about um, religion, can we claim to know anything in those areas. Uh, this book by C.S. Lewis, of course, anything by C.S. Lewis is great. Um, this book in particular, The Abolition of Man, uh, is a really insightful piece on why it's important that we um, not give up on the possibility of knowing moral truth and why we can trust moral truth, and what will happen ultimately culturally and socially if we do give up on the idea of knowing moral truth. Um, and he makes uh, a, a really compelling argument that, that our emotions are importantly involved in our knowing of moral truth uh, in this book. He thinks that um, if we stop trusting our emotions, like horror when we think about the Holocaust or anger at injustices, um, we, we are cutting ourselves off from our knowledge of uh, the badness of those things. And likewise, if we stop trusting our awe when we look at the um, beautiful snow-capped Rocky Mountains, we're cutting ourselves off from our source of knowledge of the beauty in the world. Um, and so that's a, that's a great book, The Abolition of Man. Um, and then here on the right, um, a couple of things. Up at the top here, this is a publication that's put out by Baylor University, which is where I did my... Um, my graduate work in philosophy. They have a, uh, a center there called the Center for Christian Ethics. And this, um, this uh, little journal that they put out is called Christian Reflection, a series in faith and ethics. And um, every uh, a couple of months, they come out with a new issue on a new theme. And it includes articles from scholars, but they're written at a, at a fairly popular level. They also have... Um, Sunday school kinds of uh, uh, prep materials. They have um, poems. They have songs, discussions of hymns. So it's a really nice little piece, and you can subscribe to it for free. You can, all you have to do is go to their website and say, yes, I'd like to receive that in the mail, and they'll send it to you for free. It's called Christian Reflection. Um, really nice little piece. In fact, some of what I talked about today, um, there's an article in there um, by, a, by a friend of mine 
uh, called Paul and the Philosophers, in which he discusses some of this material. Um, and so I think I even put, yeah, that's the, uh, the Book of Acts uh, back issue in which that, uh, that article appears. But they've got several issues. I think the current one is on the virtue of generosity. Um, so yeah, really, really neat stuff in there. Um, the website. I don't remember the exact website. If you email me, I can get it to you. But if you Google um, Baylor University Christian Reflection Journal, you'll get, you'll get a link to it. And then lastly, um, this is a, a popular uh, journal uh, called the Christian Research Journal um, that is written at a popular level. But again, um, the articles that appear in it are written by scholars in their fields. And um, it uh, engages all kinds of issues from Christian worldview to ethics to apologetics um, to discernment, uh, sort of, you know, how to discern teachings within the church. Um, this is put out by um, an organization called the Christian Research Institute. Uh, this, this is not a free publication, so you do have to subscribe, but many of their articles are available online. Their past issues are available online for free um, at uh, equip.org. E-Q-U-I-P dot O-R-G. So if you want to just get, look at those articles and just sort of surf through what they've got, there's lots of really good and interesting reading material there, and it's all fairly short um, in article format, and so um, some, some neat stuff there. Um, you'll see this is the most recent issue on, and there's a cover is, uh, article on evaluating the Star Wars uh, worldview, for those of you who are Star Wars fans or not. Okay. Um, one thing I just wanted to add, and I think I talked about this the first week, we both did, but it's, in, philosophy is important, it's important for us to know things, it's important for us to be, our, be able to articulate our faith, but when it comes down to it, we can have the wisdom of hu- the best human minds, we can have, speak in all kinds of tongues, you know where I'm going with this, but if we don't love, if we don't have love in our hearts, if we don't have a generosity that Christ showed us, it, it all comes to nothing. And so I think it's important to remember that, that just love is, the love for wisdom is, is really what should motivate philosophy, and our love for others should motivate our sharing of our faith. Um, and so let's not forget that in our, in our zeal and in our zest to learn more. Let's keep that as the center. Good. All right. I don't think I can say anything better than that. So let's close, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this rich time of engaging our minds and our hearts and thinking deeply about you and your word and your truth. We thank you that you have drawn us into the truth. We thank you that you've sent your Son, the way, the truth, and the life, to reveal the truth to us and to draw us back into a loving and peaceful relationship with you even though we sinned against you. We thank you so much for that salvation that you offer through Jesus' death and his resurrection, his physical resurrection of his body. We thank you that we have a physical resurrection to look forward to one day, that you will raise us and that you will turn these corruptible bodies, these weak, frail bodies of ours into perfected, glorious bodies that we will get to live in for all eternity in your presence in the presence of you and in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for creating us in your image, for giving us the grace to love you back and to love each other. 
commit this time to you, we commit our hearts to you, and we commit our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen.